been uh, I've been reading uh, a book by John Piper. It's called Desiring God. And one of the things that he really puts in there, he's, he says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so the idea behind that is that um, as we enjoy God, he is more glorified in us. And so I hope that as you come today, um, before we, we pray and get into to the sermon, that you realize that, that being a Christian and coming to God isn't about begrudging um, obligations or duty, but instead it's about overflowingly enjoying God. It's about understanding that there is so much abundant joy to be had in Him that it's springing up. And that as we come into relationship with Him, He fills us with His joy. And that as we are most filled with His joy, as we are most satisfied with Him, then he receives the most glory in our lives. And so let us, let us pray with that in mind, of enjoying God. Thank you so much, Jesus, that we can come to you, that we can find our deepest satisfaction in you, that you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. And so I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would fill your people, that you would illuminate your word, and that you would glorify your son, Jesus. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and that you would give us eyes to see in order that we might understand your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans, uh, Romans specifically chapter 11. Just to kind of catch us up with uh, where we're at, we've been going through Romans chapters uh, 9 through 11, and this section is talking about God's sovereignty, right? So we have in Romans, it's, it's we've been talking about all the S's, right? Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty. And so right now we're kind of in the middle of talking about God's sovereignty, right? Chapter 9 really talks about God's choice in salvation, is that God is sovereign and that he chooses and that he works through to save, right? But then we've also looked at, you know, last week we looked at chapter 10 and it, it pairs up not only God's choice in salvation, but our, our partnering with him to spread the gospel, that we are the means that God uses to save. And so in, uh, in the middle of chapter 10, Paul says, he says, how, will, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so in the middle of chapter 10, you have this, um, you have this call to not only realize that God saves, but God saves through us going, right? How beautiful are the feet that are the ones used to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so not only is God sovereign, but we are also responsible to be the means that God uses to preach the gospel. But he goes on and he says, but listen, not everybody's believed, right? Not everybody, when they hear the gospel proclaimed, automatically puts their faith in Jesus. And there's a big question here because all of Israel, all this ethnic group of people, this people that God took and formed into a nation there was a large part of them that didn't believe, right? They didn't accept Christ. And so you have this question is why, why is it that a lot of ethnic Israel, people that are born Jewish, aren't Christians? Why is it that they don't believe? And so this is kind of this topic that Paul is talking about right now is, is Israel's unbelief, Israel's stubbornness. And so he, he kind of concludes in, at the end of chapter 10 in verse 21. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so Romans chapters 9 through 11 is all about God's faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his people, despite, despite their rejection of him. 
And so we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 11, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 10, if you want to turn there real quick. But but this chapter, and especially these 10 verses, deal a lot with, is God faithful to his promises? Is God going to reject people because they reject him? How does this, how does this operate? How does God's loyalty and his faithfulness work with ethnic Israel, with this people group of the Jews? And so we're going to dive in, and we're going to... We're going to examine this. So if you would turn and read with me, um, verse 1. It says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this passage first. We're going to look at what it's actually saying, make some observations about it. And then we're going to look at the second half and we're going to see how does this apply to us? Right? How does this affect 21st century Gentile Christians um, who aren't Jewish, who aren't struggling with necessarily the same exact issues? So first, what is Paul talking about in this uh, in this section of Scripture? Well, apparently there was a large majority that thought that because ethnic Israel had rejected God, that God had rejected them, right? There's there's a claim that says, well, God must certainly be done with all the Jewish people; that there must no longer be any place for ethnic Israel because obviously they transgressed His covenant. And so Paul is dealing with this populace, this group of people that says, well, since God, since they rejected God, God's just done. He's totally rejected them. He's pushed them off. And so he asks that, he says, has God rejected his people? Now I want to notice, look at a caveat here. Notice he says his people, right? But you see, he's talking about ethnic Israel. I mean, later on, he clarifies this and he says, you know, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And so it's really important that we understand that that although God's true people are those that are bonded together with Christ, that God still has a love, has a desire for those that are ethnic Israel. God took a nation that was no nation and made them. God took a barren womb and created a whole nation of people. And so there's still a, a place in God's heart for ethnic Israel. It doesn't mean that all, because you're born Jewish, that you're saved. Paul's absolutely not saying that. No one, because they've been born to a certain tribe or a certain people, become a Christian. But he is saying that God loves this people and that he's going to save out of them. So we see the question is God rejected his people. And Paul emphatically says, no, by no means. God has not rejected his people. And we see this through four arguments. So Paul kind of goes forth and he has, he has one argument and there's four little sub points behind it. 
Okay, so Paul argues, he says, God has not rejected Israel because he hasn't rejected me. He says God has rejected Israel because he foreknew his people. He says love on them and that God hasn't rejected Israel. He looks at Elijah, right? He looks at this example from Elijah. And then the fourth one, he says God hasn't rejected Israel because God's gracious. And so let's go ahead and let's let's look at those real quick. So first, Paul says, hey, God hasn't rejected ethnic Israel because I'm Jewish, and so he says, don't, don't you tell, like, I have been born a Jew, and so I am a prime example that God isn't done saving out of his people. And so Paul, if you don't know, Paul was as ardent and as zealous of a Jew as you would ever find, right? Paul was a hero to Judaism, but he was kind of a terrorist to Christians. And so they applauded the fact that Paul was there, you know, holding coats as they killed the first Christian martyr, Stephen, that Paul was the one that went on the road to Damascus carrying an edict that he would go and hunt down Christians, that they might be bound and brought back to be sentenced to whatever, whatever fate they were chosen. But it's in the midst, in the midst of Paul rejecting Christ. Paul wanted nothing to do with Christ. He was running the exact opposite way and was persecuting Christ. And it's in the middle of this that Jesus appeared to him. Right? Paul's going on the road to Damascus and Jesus comes and blinds him by his glory. And Paul's world is forever changed. Do you see, once you really, once you really see God for who he is, you can't help but be changed. You can't help but be changed once you really see God's glory. And once you really understand who he is, he changes you forever. And so Paul's blinded, right? And he's blind for three days. And Paul goes from killing Christians to being killed as a Christian. Paul's life is entirely reversed. And so he writes in, uh, in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16, he says, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display or demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You see Paul's argument, he says, God hasn't rejected me, therefore God has not rejected all of ethnic Israel. God's going to save. Number two, God hasn't rejected Israel because God foreknew Israel. So we talked back in Romans 8, in Romans 8, 29, it talks about that God, those whom God has foreknown, he's predestined. And so what does it mean to foreknow, right? That's a pretty important question that we should ask. What does it mean to foreknow? Oftentimes we think of foreknowledge as God having this really long future-looking telescope, right? God just like is able to look into the future, and so he looks down and he sees who would believe and who wouldn't. And so because God's able to see ahead in the future, that he's able to choose. But you see that that's not what Paul means here. Because to know, especially when you go back to Genesis, as Adam and Eve knew one another, that knowledge is something very intimate. It's something very personal. Jesus talks about later in, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says he, there will be people that will come to him the last day and say, you know, we did many good works. We performed miracles. We cast out demons. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Right? It's not that Jesus didn't have an intellectual knowledge of them, but there was no intimate personal relationship. There was no love connection between them. And so what he's talking about here is it's saying that God hasn't rejected all of ethnic Israel because God is determined to set his love on them. Foreknowledge is more akin to foreloving. Is that God is, before they were even born, before the nation even existed, God determined that he would love them. God said and said, despite whatever you do, I'm going to love you. And do you see it's because of God's love that there is a remnant that is saved. And uh, in 1 Samuel twelve twenty two, he says this. It says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself, 
And again, in Psalm 94, 14, it says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So the assurance that God has not rejected Israel is because God has determined beforehand that he would love people. He has determined that he will love. The third one is that Paul set, uh, Paul next cites Elijah, and he talks about this story from Elijah. Elijah's story, he was a prophet in the divided kingdom. So Israel and Judah, they became divided. And Elijah's story is in 1 Kings chapter 17, and it goes until about 2 Kings chapter 3 when he anoints Elisha, his disciple. And Elijah comes, and he is used of God to proclaim the idolatry of the people of Israel. You know, most of us, um, if we've been in, you know, the church for a while, we grew up in Sunday school, we think of, Mount, when we think of Elijah, we think of Mount Carmel, right? Mount Carmel is this really big cosmic showdown. Basically, it's the first time you have, like, cosmic sarcasm. You know, like, Elijah is, is going against these prophets of Baal because all of Israel has followed the, this evil king named Ahab. Now, Ahab is really wicked. He's basically like the plumb line for wickedness. You know, people are like, people measure this dude. They measure all the other kings by this guy's wickedness. That's not really how you want to go down. Like, you wish you were as wicked as me. Everybody used him as the example. And so King Ahab was was wicked, and he led all of Israel astray to follow this Canaanite god named Baal or Baal. And so Israel's being led astray, and... God calls Elijah, he says, come, and I want you to confront these prophets of Baal, and I want you to see, and I want all of Israel to come, and I want King Ahab to to come, and I want you to demonstrate who is really God, who is really the true ruler and reigner, and, and who is sovereign. And so Elijah comes, and he tells the prophets of Baal, he says, go, and he gives them a sacrifice, and there's 450, and they cut themselves, they wail, and Elijah along this process kind of says, is your God sleeping? Maybe he has to go to the restroom. <laughs> um, you know, maybe you should arouse him. Just cut yourself some more. And so the prophets of Baal continue to cry, but, but Baal doesn't rise up. And Elijah pours gallons and gallons and gallons of water on his sacrifice. And he prays and he calls down and God comes down in a fire and lips up and, and devours the sacrifice and all of the water in there. And Elijah goes and he kills the rest of the prophets of, of Baal. They all die. And so you see this, this huge, this huge moment, this huge victory, this huge sign from God. I mean, fire from heaven coming down, devouring a sacrifice. And, uh, and then there was this drought that was ended. Elijah prayed and this rain cloud came and it started raining on the people again. And so you would think this is a pretty high moment. You know, like this is like, you're talking about spiritual mountaintops. Like Elijah is like, you know, on the spiritual mountaintop. And, uh, and so he's just come from this really high moment. And then he gets this word, Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, hears that, uh, that Elijah has killed her prophets. And so she swears on her own life. She says, if I, if I don't kill you, I'll die. And so she swears on her own life that she's going to kill Elijah. And so Elijah goes from being on this mountaintop to being like in the depths of despair. And so Elijah goes from facing 450 prophets to running away from the queen. And so Elijah runs away from the queen and he starts to become depressed. He starts to become despondent and in despair. And he starts thinking to himself, I'm, nobody's, nobody's here. Nobody's with me. Everybody's left me. I'm the only one left. And so he's talking to God in the middle of his despair. And in first Kings chapter 19, um, he says, uh, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Can you guys relate to Elijah as far as like moments in your life where you're in despair, where you feel like you're alone, you feel like you're forsaken, like there's nobody else with you? Isn't it so good to know that in the middle of Elijah's despair, in the middle of his isolation and his loneliness, that God spoke to him? Right? What God said to Elijah, he says, you don't understand my plan. You're too short-sighted. You're too stuck in your own limitations to step back and realize who I am. And so it's so good in the middle of our depression, in the middle of our despair, to stop for a little bit and realize that God is bigger than we are, that God has a plan, and if we can't see it, it doesn't mean that God's at work. And so he says this, he turns to Elijah, and he says, and he opens up a little bit of his plan to Elijah. He says, let me pull back the curtain a little bit so you can get a glimpse. You're not alone. And he says this, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Right? So what God tells Elijah is he says, listen, you don't know, but I am keeping a people for myself. Right? I am keeping a people for myself that are loyal. I am maintaining a remnant that will not bow, that will not give in, that will be loyal and faithful to me. And I will do it because I am the Lord. And so one of the big reasons that, especially in this example, one of the reasons that we know that there's going to be a remnant of Israel, that there's going to be a people that believe is because God cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself. And so God has not rejected Israel because God has not rejected himself. God has not rejected Israel because God has not rejected himself. So the last argument that Paul moves on is that he says that the reason that God has not rejected Israel is because God is gracious. Because God is gracious. And he says there in in verse 5, he says, uh, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Do you notice that Paul says chosen? God has chosen a people, right? This doesn't mean, and he he says later, he says chosen. He says that they are elect. He says that God is keeping a people for himself, right? What this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that it's deterministic or fatalistic. It doesn't mean that we're robots without a choice. But what it does mean is it means that we have to remember that who is the author of salvation? Who brings about salvation? Who gives it, right? Its source stems from God. And so it's because God and his posture is gracious that anyone is saved, that God will keep a people for himself. God has, has determined that he will be gracious and it is because he is gracious that we are saved. Do you see that we aren't saved because we're better than anybody else? Man, as Christians, we come to God and we realize that our salvation isn't because we're intelligent, isn't because we're wiser, isn't because we're, you know, because we're born of this family. It's nothing good in us. The reason that we are saved is simply because God is gracious. Is simply because God is gracious. And so what we see is that we see these four arguments, right? God has not rejected Israel because Paul is an Israelite. God's foreloved his people. He's determined he's going to love them um, because Elijah shows that God has a remnant that he's going to keep that we don't know what God's up to. And then the last one is that God is gracious. God is gracious. And because God is gracious, there are people that are saved. So we go on to this and we look at verse 7. So if you want to look at verse 7 with me real quick. He asks, he says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. He says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 
Okay, so we need to ask this question. We've we've looked at it before, but what does Paul mean by the rest were hardened? Right? What does he what does he mean by hardening? Because you see, sometimes what we what we really need to understand is that God doesn't God doesn't have people that come to him and say, Well, I really want to come to you, God. I really want to come to you, and God says, Well, too bad, I'm gonna harden you. You're not coming to me. That's not that's not at all what this means. What it, what it means is that God hardens those who harden themselves. Now, John Stott, he says this, he says that Paul has in mind a judicial process by which God gives people up to their own stubbornness. uh, Tim Keller, he clarifies, and he says, a retribution is a punishment that exactly fits the crime. Hardening is thus a fitting punishment for a proud spirit. Pride and self-centeredness lead to hardness and lovelessness. Rejection of God leads to rejection from God. Though God executes it, it is a natural consequence. And so what he says is, he says, all those that are hardened are those that want to be hardened. All those that are hardened are those that choose to be hardened and lead themselves in that path. And God gives them over to the desires of their heart. Now, Paul clarifies this by quoting two Old Testament passages so we look and he says, as is written, God gave them a, a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And he's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 29, 10. And then the next quote is, is Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23. The Isaiah quote is especially important because what he's saying here is Isaiah is actually summarizing Deuteronomy. And if you don't know, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Moses is the one that authored Deuteronomy. And Moses is talking to the Israelites. Right? There's a second generation of Israelites that are about to enter the land that God promised to them. Now, they weren't there when God gave the Ten Commandments, when God gave the law. Right, That generation has died, and there's a new generation. They're about to enter into the promised land, and God is rehashing with them. He's retelling them the covenant. He's saying, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to promise to do this. And so he's talking to the covenant with them. And what Moses tells them, he says, listen, if you forsake the covenant, if you reject God, you're going to become spiritually blind. If you reject God, you're going to become hard-hearted. This hardness of heart is going to follow you whenever you reject God. And so Isaiah is saying, don't you see, Moses told about this. Moses said and told his people that if you reject God and reject his covenant, that your heart is going to become hard, that you're going to have eyes, but you're not going to see, that you're going to have ears, but you're not going to hear. And Isaiah says, this hardening, it's still now, it's still going on. And Paul is now saying, don't you see? It started in Moses. It continued in Isaiah. And guess what? It's still here. It is still here. People are still being hardened because of their rejection, because of their rejection of God. So we've kind of seen a little bit about the passage, right? We've kind of got a broad understanding of what it is, that God's not going to reject Israel because of these things, but instead he's let them over to his hardening. So I want to look real briefly at five different ways in which this text applies to us. Right, so how does this text apply to us as 21st century American Christians? So, first, God does not reject his people. Right? God does not reject his people. Right? We've already talked about that God has a special sense in which he loves ethnic Israel, but really God's people are those that are bonded together by Christ and faith. Right? When you place your faith in Jesus, God will never reject you. Right? That is such good news because we live in a world where we're constantly wondering about relationships, about jobs, about all kinds of circumstances around us. Does our performance, is our performance good enough? Are we going to be rejected? And isn't it so freeing to know that because we are bonded together by Jesus and faith, God will never reject us. 
God will never reject you. Accept that, believe that, hold that into your heart that you are his son, you are his daughter, and because he loves you, he will never reject you. Number two, we learned that following Christ isn't always a popular or easy road. Following Christ isn't always a popular or easy road. Right, we see this with Paul. Paul often felt isolated. Right, he traveled often, frequently alone. And he, you read Second Corinthians. I mean, he's all. I mean, Paul felt the gamut of emotions. He felt betrayed at times. He felt alone and isolated. He felt hurt. He felt betrayed. Paul feels all these gamuts of emotions. And then you look at Elijah. Right, Paul quotes Elijah, and Elijah was obedient to God. And because Elijah was obedient to God, his life was sought. He was hunted down to be killed. Because he was obedient to God. And you see, sometimes we come into Christianity and we think that this is out to make my life better and easier and, you know, and more fruitful in a worldly sense. Do you understand? Jesus talks about it and he says in, uh, he says in Matthew 7, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way that it, and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. If you want an easy life, if you want a, a popular life, if you want an acceptable life, if you want a life that's filled with worldly comforts and pleasures, following the Nazarene isn't for you. Jesus calls us to count the cost of discipleship. And he says that anyone that loves their father, mother, brother, sister more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone that is not, not willing to give up everything that they have is not worthy of me. And so Christ calls supreme allegiance in our hearts and in our lives. There is nothing that is to be greater or more than him. And this isn't popular. This isn't easy. This is costly. Do you see that, that Christianity is... <laughs> It's more costly than it is complicated. You see, oftentimes what we want to do, and it's true in my life, is we want to make things more complicated. We want to try to figure out how can I get out of this? Well, I'm just, it's just not clear what exactly I should do in this situation. And so we try to complicate things rather than realizing that it's actually most of the time, it's more simple because it just is harder. God calls us to sacrifice more. He calls us to die to ourselves more. And we'd rather make things more complicated than it is that we would rather die to ourselves. And Jesus calls us to die to ourselves daily, to take up our cross and bear it. And you see that this is so much harder, but yet so much more beautiful, so much more beautiful. And so are you, are you willing to stand firm in what you believe, even when everybody else around you doesn't? Are you willing to love people deeply enough and share the truth with them when others will only keep silent? Following Christ isn't easy, and it isn't always popular. Number three, what we learn from this text is that God is going to save. God is going to save. Will we be used in the process? Right? He, he, God replies to Elijah. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul says that there's a remnant who are chosen by grace. And in verse 7, he talks about the elect. Right? One of the beautiful things that we learn about, there's, I mean, there's a doctrine when you look, the Bible talks about election, talks about predestination, talks about these things. And one of the things that we learn about it is that it's a promise that God is going to save. God is, is going to save. Now this, once again, it's not fatalistic. It's not deterministic because God saves through means. 
God saves through means. But man, isn't it such good news to know that God has determined that he is going to save people? Man, can't we praise the Lord for that? To know that like, that even when we're unfaithful, God is going to move and God is going to save. God's going to rescue. The question is, are we going to be used in that process? Because don't you see that, that you, you are the ones that God uses to demonstrate his love to your neighbors. You are the one that God uses to demonstrate his love to your family, to your coworkers, to those that you encounter on the street. You are God's means of demonstrating his love. You are God's means of using to bring about the gospel in people's lives. How is it that your family, that your friends, that your neighbors, that your coworkers are here about Christ? Well, God has put you in their life. God has positioned and put you specifically in their life that they might hear about him, that they might know him. It's not by accident that you live where you live. It's not by accident that you work where you work. It's not by accident that your family is who your family is. Right? These things are brought about that you might make, might make much of Jesus, that you might be faithful to demonstrate. And you can't control whether people are saved or not. It's not up to you to determine the results. It's up to you to be faithful in the process. Because so often we're, we're caught in fear because we don't want people to react a certain way. And you understand that you're not in charge of people's salvation. You're not the one that determines. And you're called simply to love and to explain and to be faithful in the process. God's going to save. Are we going to be used in the process that God has? Number four, we can harden our hearts and therefore have our hearts hardened to God. We can harden our hearts and therefore have our hearts hardened to God, right? The text says that the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. You know, we already talked to Paul goes on, he quotes Isaiah and he quotes Moses and he talks about this hardening. And Paul earlier in, in Romans one, he talks about, and he mentions three times that God gave a people up. God gave this people up and to themselves, right? In Romans chapter one, verse 24, he says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What we see here is that our hearts become hard when we reject God and we put something else in the place of God. You see that you were created to worship God. You were created to be in communion with him, to know him, to, to be loved by him. And when we put anything else in that position, our hearts become hard. This text is talking about primarily those that don't know Christ, right? That there are those that don't know Christ, that they reject Christ and their heart is hardened because literally they are worshiping and serving something that isn't God. And it destroys them. It, it, it eats them up from the inside out. But this principle also applies to those who claim to follow Christ. That whenever we center our lives around something other than God, that it will begin to destroy us. It will begin to, to harden our hearts towards the ways of God, towards the gospel of God. And I want you to understand, hardness doesn't mean, hardness doesn't mean that people are angry against God or people are lashed out in frustration. Hardness means that they're just indifferent. Right? Hardness means that they could care less. That when God's ways or when God's gospel is brought up, they're just apathetic. You know, I could take it or leave it. And often this is the hardness that we see is that people think that we're, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I guess, you know, God's good to have every once in a while. And you see the hardness of heart. It's there. 
because when the things of God are brought up, there's not a there's not joy, there's not sorrow, there's no emotion. Instead, it's it's simply indifference, and they could care less. And this is what slowly happens because sin calluses our heart, and you'll notice it. Let me ask: When you think about the love of God, is it actually real to you, or is it just an idea? Does God love? Does God's love doesn't motivate you? Does it? Is there any emotion that you have with it, or simply an intellectual idea? When you go throughout your life, do you think you're doing just fine, or does your sin actually humble you? Does it convict you? Does it lead you to cry out for Christ, or do you justify it and think that it's not really that big of a deal? Do you see that encountering God, being with God, means that you're moved, it means that you're changed? Like Paul, we can't see God's glory and leave the same. So are we centering around God? Are we making him the center of our lives? Or are we putting other things before him? that our hearts are hardened. Number five, the basis of our approach to God is by his grace, right? The way that we approach God is by his grace. And in verse five, uh, verse five through six, it says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do you understand the reason that anyone is a Christian isn't because we're more intelligent, we're smarter. It's because God has chosen to show grace and save. And so I want to run through four real brief things that what grace means and how grace affects us, right? Grace means that anyone and everyone can become a Christian, right? Your background, your past, what you've done or haven't done doesn't determine your standing before God. Listen, there's, there's nothing that you can scare away God with. God has seen the worst that hell can offer. And so there's nothing you can do that's going to worry him or scare him away. And so what grace means is that anyone and everyone is welcome at the foot of the cross, Number two, it means that becoming a Christian is a gift. It's a gift. It's given by God's grace. And here's the thing. It's, it's given despite our actions, not because of. And the reason, that, we, the reason that, that us as Christians, we struggle with pride and we struggle with selfishness is because we have forgotten that all of our life is simply a gift of God's grace. And we've begun to think that we've earned it. We've become, we've become entitled for those things. And the remedy is once again to remember that everything that we have, that our entire salvation is simply an, a, an act of God's lavish grace in us. Do you understand that this humbles us and this allows us to have the perseverance to show grace to everyone and anyone? And so, number three, it says that we need grace, right? When, when God gives grace, it says that we actually need grace. And what this means is it means that we're more sinful than we understand. It means that our sin runs deeper in our heart than we right now can see. And this is a, sometimes a really frustrating thing as a Christian is because you think that you've done due diligence. You see, you think you've, and then the Lord continues to reveal things. And you're like, it's still there. Like it's still deeper. And so what it means is grace means is that sin runs much deeper in our heart than we understand currently. And so it's constantly humbling us, helping us realize that we can't save ourselves. We don't got, we don't have this, right? But Christ does. And so it's constantly putting us in a place of realizing that I have to, I have to be in a constant state of confession and repentance. Right? Repentance is a lifestyle. It's something that we are continually doing. Sometimes it's frustrating because you're like, I just confessed and repented of this last week. Why am I having to do this again and again and again? Because God is about building in you a character that is eager for his ways and not your own. As he wants us to be faithful, to constantly be confessing and repenting of our sin. And number four, grace says that we can't lose God's love for us. 
right? Grace says that we can't lose God's love for us because here's the thing. If we didn't earn God's love based on our actions, then we can't lose God's love based on our actions. God's love is permanent and it's never ending. And this is, man, this is such good news to our hearts because what it means is that the gospel says, listen, you're more sinful than you ever could have imagined, but you're more loved than you ever dared believe. And so what grace says, it says that you don't understand the magnitude of God's love for you. That God is set and determined to bring about good in your life and his glory. And when God sets out and determines that he's going to do something, he finishes it. God has begun a good work in you and he will bring it to completion. That even when you are hard-hearted, even when you're frustrated against God, even when you ignore his commands and go your own way, God is still bent on loving you like the prodigal father who's waiting for his son to return. God is there with open hands loving you. Grace says that you can't lose God's love. He is bound and determined and set to love you. So we've talked about five ways. I want us to end I want us to end as we come up and, and worship more um, and prepare for communion by thinking about how does this passage teach us about Jesus? How does this show us how does this show us our Savior? I think that we see Jesus here in a multitude of ways, but I think one we see that for us to be his people, Christ had to be the one cast out. You see, God doesn't reject us because God had to reject Jesus. The father rejected the son and Jesus faced the rejection that you and I should face because of our actions, because of our lack of love for God. And so Jesus was cast off. Jesus was cursed that we might be brought near. Our acceptance to God came at the cost of his son. You see, Without Christ, God would reject us. Without Christ, we wouldn't know or even have the desire to follow the narrow way that leads to life. Without Christ, we would be useless to God's process of salvation. Without Christ, our hearts would still be hardened and separated from God. Without Christ, we wouldn't have experienced the grace of God. Do you understand? Without Christ, we stand barren, we stand hard-hearted, we stand as enemies of the grace of God. But because of Jesus... He has come and he has made a way. It's because of him that we can even have soft hearts to hear the message that he's saying right now. If, you hear, if you're here and you don't know Christ, maybe you've gone to church your life or maybe you have thought that you're a good person, but you haven't really trusted in his ability and his performance and his love for you, can I encourage you to accept him, to believe in him, to, to, to center your life on him, Because he is the only one, when you worship him, he will set you free. Everything else that you worship will make you a slave. Christ will set you free. Worship him. Sense your life in him. Put your faith in him. Give over all of your cares. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. And stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. For those of us that follow Christ... I'd ask that as we worship, let your hearts be filled with thankfulness by the fresh realization that everything that we have is a gift of God's grace, that he loves us for Jesus' sake, and his love for us will never pass. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you that you are faithful and that you are good. God, I pray for those that perhaps don't know you. I pray that you would help them to believe, God, that you give them ears to hear and eyes to see, and I pray that they would trust you, Jesus, that they would center their life around you, For you desire to comfort, you desire to encourage, you desire to impart yourself to them that they might feel the joy and the uh, the love that you have. 
for those of us that know you. God, I pray that you would bring fresh realization of our dependence upon you, God, that you would both humble us, but you would also exalt us by your love, Jesus. We praise and we worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.